Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read that passage? This is our third letter from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So the first letter from Jesus was to the church at Ephesus, and we saw that they were busy doing good things, but the problem was their hearts had left their first love. And then 50 miles down the road is another port city, Smyrna. Um, the church of that city had endured through trying times. It was about to have an even greater testing and another 50 miles down the road is this city that we just read about, Pergamum. It was 15 miles from the coast. It was said to be the greatest city of Asia at the time. It was built on a conical hill overlooking a plain. And there were four notable temples to Greek gods and three to Roman emperors. We have no record of how the church was founded, but we can probably assume that it was a, an outreach from Ephesus, that the church that Paul planted in Ephesus was effective and, and sharing the gospel so that the church began in, in Pergamum. And I want to remind us, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see each of these letters is in red, right? Because it's the words of Jesus. And sometimes when I, I'm reading commentaries, they'll say, well, John was saying, no, John's not saying anything in these letters. This is, these are the words of Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord to these churches. He's dictating them to John. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So each letter begins, as we've probably already started to notice, that it begins with a description of Jesus that comes from the first chapter. And the choice of the particular description of Christ is always something that applies to that particular church. 
The sharp two-edged sword is mentioned later in the book to describe Jesus' weapon against his enemies. In verse 16, Jesus declares that it will be used to fight against them if they do not repent. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And it cuts both ways. It discerns between soul and spirit. In other words, ourself and what the Spirit of God in us is telling us. It divides between the two. It shows us what the difference is. Like the previous church, we may be, we may be going, it may have been going through the motion, doing good things, but God's word discerns our motives. The reasons behind why we're doing the works that we do, whether they're selfish or out of duty or out of love for God and our neighbor. And this passage goes on to say that nothing is hidden from his eyes, those eyes that were described as a flame of fire. Everything is laid bare before him. The introduction, description of Jesus must have been chilling to those first listeners when they heard that intro, and it should be chilling to us as well. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, there are various theories as to what it's meant by where Satan dwells, where his throne is. It was the first city to build a temple to Augustus Caesar the first Caesar to declare himself to be a god. And it could have been any of the temples to the Greek gods or the emperors, or, or perhaps all of them considered together. Tourists think of our town as a place where Satan dwells. When they see all the New Age shops and they hear about all the various cults, some commentators think Satan's throne was the temple of Asclepius, because of the snakes that would writhe on the temple floor. And people who wanted to be healed would lay on the floor and hope that one of the snakes would happen to crawl across their body and they thereby be healed. Kind of creepy, isn't it? <laughs> one of the emblems of the city was in fact a, a snake and they would carve them into marble or stone and several Christian stonemasons were martyred there because of their refusal to carve those images. Others believe it was the altar of Zeus on top of the Acropolis. Edwin Yamauchi describes it as follows. He says that the word altar is somewhat misleading. The structure is a monumental colonnaded court in the form of a horseshoe, 120 feet by 112 feet. The podium of the altar was nearly 18 feet high, and the great frieze which ran around the base of the structure for 446 feet depicted gigantomy, that is, battle of the gods against the giants. It was one of the greatest works of Hellenistic art, end of quote. But we don't need to know which of these temples referred to as Satan's throne. The important thing is, it was the city that was difficult to be a Christian. 
Jesus said that in the face of, of all that resistance, they had held fast to his name. It's interesting that uh, Dan chose to talk about the name this morning and that we happened to sing about the name this morning. None of that was planned except by the planner. <laughs> we increasingly see the same kind of resistance, resistance to the name of Jesus in our own culture. Have you ever noticed, um, or maybe you haven't had the opportunity, that if you're in a conversation with people and you bring up Jesus, there's a reaction. His name divides. Some want to claim to believe in Jesus in our culture, in our city, but they want to change his biblical identity into a God of their own design. Hold fast his name, his real name who the Bible declares him to be, because you see, name means the sum of his attributes. When we talk about the name of God or we talk about the name of Christ, we're talking about all that they are in their essence. That's what their name represents. His, he is uncompromising with evil, but he also graciously offers forgiveness to those who repent. Even when one in their midst was martyred, they refused to deny their faith in Jesus. Deny my faith might, might be better translated, deny faith in me. Once every year the, in Roman cities, there would be a special festival to honor the emperor. It, it worshiped the emperor, basically. And while emperor worship may have been the reason for martyrdom, it was Satan who was the instigator. That may be the reason for the additional mention of Satan dwelling there. As the center of emperor worship in all of Asia Minor, refusing to worship the emperor there would have been especially egregious to the citizens of Pergamum. The sword from Jesus' mouth is meant to warn the apostates within the church, but also to warn the government that is abusing its power. I think uh, some of that can be applied here in our own culture. We cannot be sure of the facts around Antipas' death. There's no uh, even traditions about how Antipas died. The only thing we have written was around a thousand AD, which is quite a bit afterwards, so we can't be certain of this. And it comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church. The tradition claimed that Antipas was roasted alive in a bronze bowl during the persecution of Emperor Domitian, which is about the time of this letter was written. Jesus called Antipas his faithful witness. And that's quite an honor because it's a title Jesus used for himself in chapter one, verse five. It's most likely also referring to Isaiah 43.10 in which God refers to Jesus as his faithful witness. As Jesus is God's faithful witness, so Antipas was Jesus' faithful witness. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? Imagine the intimidation that church felt seeing that glowing hot bronze bull, Roman soldiers dressed for battle, 
and hear the order of the governor, sacrifice to Domitian as Lord and God, or be thrown into the hot bowl. Antipas was probably one of the elders of that church and picked to be an example to others. The church must have watched and prayed, asking God for a merciful and quick death for Antipas. And still, they did not budge. They held fast to their faith in Jesus as Lord of all. After witnessing that, would we do the same? I, I'd like to hope, I would hope that we would stand our ground. You know, I just, I feel led to tell the story of those, or remind us of the story of those, I think it was 12 or 13 men on the shore when ISIS began its terror reign and they beheaded those men in the orange jumpsuits. And 12 of them uh, were Christians, but one of them was not. And he was the last to be executed. And when he saw the faith of those men and how they refused to deny Christ, when asked if he was a Christian, he said he was. The only unbeliever there. But seeing their death and their, the, the confidence, the assurance they had that they would give their life caused him to believe in Christ as Savior. And it's fascinating to see how persecution wins the genuine seeker to the Lord. They see the example of that total conviction, conviction even unto death, and it strengthens the believers and it convicts the half-hearted. At times, it even encourages conversions like that story. I'm not saying that it's easy or that it doesn't cause fear that has to be dealt with, However, it certainly does not have the effect that one would imagine in the natural ways of men. When fear of a torturous death is not sufficient to move believers, the rulers must have backed off on their demand, for we don't read of any other martyrs other than Antipas. Paul had something to say about this kind of bold witness in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter one, or the Philippians, I'm sorry, Philippians 1.29, 28, Philippians 1, 28, he writes, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. But all was not well with Pergamum. Verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. Uh, we went over the teaching of Balaam in, a, in the sermon on the letter to the Ephesians, and uh, some of you ask where we could find about Balaam in Scripture. It's really a combination of passages, starting with Numbers 25. Um, uh, no, it's, I'm sorry, earlier than that. But in Numbers 25, it tells of the Midianite women using sexual seduction to draw the men of Israel to worship other gods. Numbers 31.16 tells us that that was all on the advice of Balaam. 
He could not prophesy against them. Balak had hired him to prophesy against them because he was worried about a war would take place, so he wanted to make sure the gods cursed Israel, so he hired Balaam, and uh, you know the story of the donkey that, uh, that spoke. And Balaam knew he couldn't prophesy against them. And when he tried to prophesy, he prophesied blessings over Israel. But he wanted that money that was offered. And so Balaam said, I I can't figure out how to, I can't curse them. God won't let me curse them, but I know how you can ruin them. Send the ladies in to seduce the men and have them come and worship your gods and God will turn against them. And that's what they did. Of course, God stopped that with a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. But uh, Balaam didn't get to spend his fortune. He died in the battle when Israel fought the forces of Balak. The early church had the same temptations because of several factors in the culture around them. For the most part, the only way you could get meat in the ancient world was to go to the temple where things were sacrificed, and after they were sacrificed, the meat was eaten uh, by the worshipers. The temples would have these great feasts afterwards. And the problem for Christians was the feasts often devolved into sexual immorality involving the temple prostitutes. And most of those in the church in Pergamum held to the Jerusalem Council's uh, edict not to eat food sacrificed to idols or to practice sexual immorality. However, there were those within the church that taught that it was okay. Even if you could keep yourself above it all, it it would stumble a a weaker brother if you participated even in just eating the meat. So the best way to deal with temptation is to stay away from it. Coach McCartney used to say, when you know where your line of temptation is, mark it clearly and stay 10 yards back. Football, you know, 10 yards. Stay away from it. That's the best way to deal with it. We don't know the reason behind the compromise or exactly what was being taught. Perhaps it was an abuse of grace. You know, at the time, some people uh, in Romans chapter 6, for example, Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Some people are saying that because they understand how wonderful grace is, but we should be doing the opposite. We should be sinning less because God's so gracious. It is enough to know we can justify any sin in our mind if we really want to. Now, it's not a valid justification, but we can reason our way around why it's okay to do it. But I would suggest a general rule to go by. If you need to hide something from your fellow believers, don't do it. If you wouldn't do it in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't do it. It's a good sign that it's probably not of God. The disciples lived with Jesus day in and day out. They saw all of his life in every situation. Nothing was hidden. And a godly person 
will desire to live in an open example before others. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, some commentators have saying, or, uh, believe that when he said so also, he's, they're saying this, is, this story of Balaam is just like the Nicolaitans. Others think they're two separate groups. They're this, this group that behaves like uh, Balaam's teaching and the Nicolaitans. Um, either way, they were taking Christian liberty and freedom from the law to teach that you could do whatever you wanted with your body so long as your spirit belonged to Jesus. They probably rationalized it by saying in their hearts that they didn't believe that the, the God being celebrated. Um, it's, and Paul said, idols are nothing in themselves. They're just stone. So they might have reasoned, well, it's not, we're not really doing anything. We know it's just a rock, so we can get away with this. But it's what followed afterwards. They might have even reasoned in their mind they were doing their civic duty. You know, Paul said we are to obey those in, in authority over us in the government. But we obey God first, amen? In this strong church that stood in the face of death threats, there was a faction compromising with the world which may have also helped them to avoid persecution participating in idolatry and sexual immorality represented what it meant to be a Christian. So doing those things distorted what people's idea of Christianity was. Idolatry and sexual, sexual immorality are paired in a number of verses throughout Scripture. There's no new thing under the sun. The form this temptation takes today is most often pornography. It's idolatry of the human form that promises satisfaction but ends in destroying marriages and relationships and leads to more sexual immorality. Similar justifications are used today. I'm not harming anyone. This is not spiritual, it's just physical, they argue. And both are a lie. The warning in this passage is to us all. But the real problem was that the church of Pergamum tolerated this behavior, this teaching within its church. Gentleness and kindness were put above truth and justice. I want to be very careful, though, to distinguish the responsibility of the church. If some blatant sin is generally known to all, then there must be discipline by the church. To tolerate clearly sinful activity is to sanction it. We must especially confront false teaching that would encourage compromise in our Christian testimony. On the other hand, we must avoid the temptation to gossip and speculate. It's not our job to go nosing around in others' affairs, make assumptions. We almost one time had a family leave because someone thought something was going on that wasn't going on busybodies. The blatant incest we read about in the letter to the Corinthians was known by the whole church and was tolerated. The teaching of the Nicolaitans 
was not something one person was dabbling in. It was a faction of false teaching within the church causing some to compromise with idolatry and fornication. So no matter how loving and gentle we are, we should not tolerate anything that stumbles the weaker believers. And neither should we do as some would like and gather around the weak and wounded and shoot them. (laughs) We need to focus on restoration Everything must be done in love, with understanding, and with an effort to restore, and yet without compromise. If someone confides in you about a sin in their life, don't bring it to the elders. They're trusting you in confidence to pray with them and encourage them. Now, of course, if someone's in danger or it's spreading to other people, that, then that's a different case. And if they don't receive your godly instruction, the great shepherd will deal with them. Your elders are not going to hunt down sin in your lives. Of course, we want you to live lives of holiness, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction of sin. We'll address any issue tolerated by a faction in the church or sin that's blatantly known to all or damaging others' lives, and that's the job of elders as shepherds protecting the flock. Verse 16, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Regarding this repeated warning of the sword, Beale writes, it's especially intriguing that Balaam was threatened with being killed by the sword in Numbers chapter 22, verse 23 the sword of the angel of the Lord, if he continued to oppose Israel. And when he didn't heed the warning, he was killed by the sword, which sealed his destiny of not entering into life of the world to come, end of quote. This warning is written for the whole church, as all the letters were. They held on to their faith in Jesus. They didn't deny his name, but they tolerated sinful compromise, which was harming the testimony of Jesus in that city. Jesus isn't going to only war against those who held the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but to the church as a whole for allowing the false teaching to continue. The church needed to repent, to turn around their thinking on tolerating this compromise. They, they might have thought it kept them from the Roman sword, but we must be more concerned about the sword of the Lord. Tolerance is the attribute that our society lauds today, but it is increasingly asking us to tolerate evil. Jesus says he will personally fight against the church that tolerates evil with the sword of his mouth. And we've witnessed the demise of denominations that compromise the clear instructions of Scripture. It's been asked, well, where's that line that has to be drawn between uh, as to what to confront as false teaching and what we tolerate as a difference of opinion? And that's not an easy answer. Of course, what's obviously unbiblical doctrine or that which denies who, what, who Christ is and what he's done for us has to be confronted. 
The council in Jerusalem had already told them not to compromise eating food offered to idols and sexual immorality. Defiance of church authority must also be confronted so that factions don't form within the church. Peter and Jude clearly laid out the marks of a false teacher, which are sensuality, greed, and pride. And they're the same problems today. Verse 17a, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for all whom God has enabled to hear his encouragement and his warnings. At the end of each letter, we have to ask if we are willing to hear what Jesus personally dictated to us, his body, the church. And 17b, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who reads it, who receives it. The conqueror, the overcomer, meanings are the same, is the one who will hear and obey what the Spirit says. We yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we change our ways. We persist in what's been commended. And when we refuse to hear, it's rebellion against our creator and our sustainer. This is to declare ourself to be Lord. It's pride. It's the pride that caused Lucifer to fall. It ensures that God is going to resist us because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. John wrote in his first letter, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're born of God, if you believe and you receive Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, you will overcome. You will endure Jesus' reward for a life surrendered to his lordship is himself. He is the hidden manna. It's contrasted with the pagan feast. How much greater is it to enjoy the bread that came down from heaven? That's what we did just a moment ago, wasn't it? There could be no greater reward. When I first taught on Pergamum here at Wayside two decades ago, I, I came home one day and on the little coffee table in our bedroom, there was a white stone. And I asked my wife, did you put this here? And she said, no, we have no idea where it came from. I looked all over and I couldn't find a name, <laughs> but I have it on my desk. I think the Lord was just trying to encourage me to keep going. John MacArthur explains that victors of athletic games were sometimes given a small white stone with their name engraved on it. It was their ticket to an awards celebration. Well, fellow victors in Christ, Jesus, our reward, is waiting for us in a marriage feast. We will be married to the King of Kings. And that little stone you will receive is your entry to that marriage feast. 
it says you have a seat at the table. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus who won the victory for us. Now, I don't know the significance of the new name, but we see something similar in the Old Testament. Again, it's interesting that uh, Dan pointed out all the different things about names. The patriarch Abraham and Jacob both had their names changed, new names, and their new names spoke of their destiny that God had planned for them. The word new in this case is, is not just new in time, but new in nature. We're not getting just a merely a different name, but a name that is of the new creation. And I imagine it to be the essence of who he made us to be in him. What a reward that would be. Or it may be Jesus' new name as mentioned in chapter three, verse 12. We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us if it's his name or our name. Either way, it's only known between the two of us. And that speaks to intimacy with Jesus. I pray that we have an ear to hear the encouragement, the warning, and the promises to the church at Pergamum. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll, I'll give the benediction. Mm -hmm.